right, if you guys could uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. And we will once again be reading the Beatitudes and the Woes together. So I'll be starting in verse 20 of Luke chapter 6. And then once you are there in your Bibles, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Once again, we'll be reading from, uh, from verse 20 onward. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So in the last several weeks, we've been slowly working our way through Luke chapter 6. And as we've been working our way through Luke chapter 6, we've come to this section of scripture uh, with the blessings and with the woes. And in that section of scripture, you have, at least in Luke's account of this, uh, this blessing and woe section, you have four blessings and then you have four woes. And there's something unique about that because if you were to compare that to the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew's Gospel, you would notice there's eight blessings and zero woes. And in Matthew's Gospel, if you know, you have to get all the way over to chapter 23 before you get to the rest of the woes and then they're all listed in order together. But before that point in time, it's really all blessings in the Sermon on the Mount. But Luke rather uh, pointedly chooses to arrange these things together. And what you'll notice, and what you might have been noticing as we've been studying it, is the, blessing and the, the blessings and the woes are kind of opposite statements of one another. So just to point your eye to those things, uh, you'll notice, for example, the first of the blessings is, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And we can contrast that with the woe, which says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And if you were to follow that list, they follow in perfect order with one another as being opposite statements of, of the contrasting uh, verse. So, for example, the first four of the blessings are then equally balanced with the warnings found in the uh, last four of the woes. And the reason I'm pointing that out is because when we, when we come to these verses, uh, we, we have a tendency in our lives to possibly be heavy on the blessings or heavy on the woes. And as individuals, we are like this, but also preachers can, can tend to be like this, where it's all blessing and no woe, or conversely, it's all woe and no blessing. And I think that Jesus models for us, and Luke emphasizes this for us, that there's a, an equal balance, there's equal parts, blessing and woe, to be had in teaching. So as we read these, I think it's important for us to take them together. When, when the disciples are taught by Jesus, he says, blessed are you, and then he comforts those who are deserving of the blessings, and then he says, but woe to you, and then he rebukes those who are to be rebuked. And he does so equally and in even portion. And so we ought to model that and, and at least take note of that as we're studying these texts. 
Now that's all uh, not having to do with the point of tonight's text. I just wanted to point that out to you as we've been studying it. The title for our sermon tonight is The Democracy on Judgment Day. The Democracy on Judgment Day. And really today, we're going to be just dealing with the last two of the woes. Uh, You can find that in verse 25b and verse 26. So we're going to go through them in short order. Uh, We're going to try to, as best as we can, always keep that same pattern of studying the text in its context. And then we are going to try to, as long as we are able to, and by the Spirit's ability, uh, apply that to our own hearts and our own lives. So if you'll read with me in verse 25b, I want to turn your eyes to that third woe. And it says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now the contrasting statement in the blessings is, uh, Blessed are you who mourn now, for you shall laugh. And the idea that Jesus is getting at in both that blessing and that woe is there is a kind of laughter which is uh, meaningful and substantive, and there's a kind of laughter which is to be, uh, to be rebuked and to be avoided. And so what this verse is not saying is that Jesus is against laughter or against enjoyment or against people uh, having joy and sharing jokes and enjoying this life. That's not what Jesus is saying. If you were to take this verse very literally, you might, uh, you might arrive at that conclusion because we read English translations of the Bible, but the, the word laugh has a much different context, in, at least in the way that Jesus is using it. And we, we understand this because we know that Jesus isn't against laughter and he isn't against joy. What this verse makes clear to us, though, is there is a kind of laughter which ought to be a warning sign to people who are constantly laughing. And the idea here is people who laugh in such a way that they never deal with serious problems that this life has for them. The kind of people who laugh away all the concerns of this life and who never really deal substantively with the things of eternal value and therefore find themselves to actually be one day mourning and weeping because when they are confronted with those final realities, they've laughed them all away. They've laughed away their chance to actually deal with reality. And as a believer, if you've ever tried sharing the gospel with somebody, this might not be a surprise to you. You might know that when you share the gospel with somebody, there's a kind of person who, when you, when you share the weighty matters of eternity and sin and judgment and things like that, they just kind of don't take it seriously. They might look at you, they might nod, they might even agree with some of the sentiments that you give to them, but they generally laugh away the things that are taught in scripture. They laugh away the reality of hell. They laugh away the reality of an all-powerful God. They might laugh away the possibility that that God came in human form and died for their sins. They might laugh away all of those things that scripture talks about. That's the kind of laughter that this text is dealing with. It's a kind of laughter that avoids serious things and emphasizes or underscores just general enjoyment, pleasure in this life, at the expense of the weighty matters of eternity. There is a kind of laughter that you can have in this life where you can laugh and enjoy this life, but you're still considering all things in light of the weighty matters of eternity. That's not what's in view here. What's in view here instead is laughing at things and doing so as an excuse to never have to deal with them. The perfect example of this in scripture would be the laughter of King Herod, who on the night of Jesus's crucifixion is throwing a party. 
And when he's brought, and when Jesus is brought before King Herod, Herod looks at him, sees him as maybe possibly there for entertainment value, asks him to perform some signs and wonders. And when he's all done, he simply dismisses Jesus back out to the crowd for the crucifixion to continue. Herod is the kind of man who laughed away all the weighty matters of this life. And he did so even with John the Baptist. Herod is constantly found partying in scripture. It gets him into a lot of trouble. But mainly, he's, he's never dealing with serious realities. He's never dealing with substantive things. And so that's the kind of laughter that's in view. It's someone who pushes off eternal matters and who simply thinks of this life as one gigantic joke. And who thinks about Christ and God as one mythical joke, something to be scorned at, something to be laughed at. In contrast, Psalm 2 tells us that it is actually Jesus, the the Son of God, who laughs and who scorns at the rebellion of the nations. That is a real serious laughter. To contrast that with the kind of laughter of the enemies of Israel who laugh when they see Jerusalem fall, or the people who laugh because they'd rather not deal with sorrowful things or think about eternity. There's a kind of laughter that's good, and there's a kind of laughter that will one day lead to mourning and weeping. You can enjoy this life, but if you enjoy it at the expense of the life to come, you will be found mourning and weeping in that day. And that's a sad reality and a reality that people ought to deal with because judgment day is an inevitable thing. The blessings actually treat judgment day as the very means by which a Christian ought to hope. Remember, the the whole reason that the blessings can be blessings is, is because the kingdom of God is a reality. If the kingdom of God is not a reality, the blessings are simply bad, bad statements. They're, they're wrong statements because someone who's persecuted in this life is not blessed unless there is a kingdom coming in which that persecution will ultimately be vindicated. Same thing here. If the kingdom is a reality, those who laugh away by pleasures and by enjoyment this life will be found wanting when that kingdom comes. The woe is only true if the kingdom of God is real and the kingdom of God indeed is real. And it ought to be dealt with. And we ought to take seriously the claims of Scripture. The reason I point that out is because I think it's really easy for us to look at the blessings and the woes and think of them as generally good moral teaching. But eternity doesn't really hang in the balance. But eternity does hang in the balance. The blessings and the woes help us to see more clearly with eternal eyes and with a better perspective the reality that's actually standing right in front of us. The way to look at these reversals, the blessings and the woes, is to consider them in light of maybe an analogous idea, which would be if you've ever uh, taken a picture or worked with film. If you take a picture, the initial film that you have to develop is a negative. It's a dim, not so clear picture that needs to be developed over time. And if your whole picture of this life is that temporary thing that you have that's developing into something else, you're not going to see clearly what's on that film. But rather, you need development, you need time, and you need uh, the opposite, the the negative that's been developed in order to see clearly. And the blessings and woes are like that. They're negative reversals of the conditions of this life that help us to see with a better, clearer reality the things that were actually going on the whole time. It's not like anything has changed, but it's just developed. It's just advanced over the course of time. And if you know or you have a glimpse of what that picture is going to look like, it helps you to understand what you're seeing in front of you right now. Even if it's dim, even if it's hazy, even if it's mildly unclear, it helps you to see more really or more concretely things as they really are. And if you laugh now, you're dismissing all that and saying, none of that's real. I'm just going to go off what I have right in front of me. 
but that will lead to a regret that won't be able to be taken back one day. That's the third of the woes there, but uh, we can't dwell there because, again, we have to get to verse 26 and probably finish up this section this week. So we're going to get to verse 26 right now, and I want you to look with me at the final of the woes. And this is what I think we're going to spend most of our time on today. Verse 26 says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now again, if you look at this verse and you just take it at face value, you might read into this that Jesus would rebuke anyone who ever has anyone say anything positive about them. That's not what's in view here. The woe is not to anyone who's ever received a positive comment from a fellow human. It says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. And the clarifying statement that helps us to understand what was just said is, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now that example is paralleled with the the blessing where it says, uh, blessed are you when people persecute you, for so their fathers did to the actual prophets, the true prophets. The true prophets of God were persecuted and put to death for their beliefs. The false prophets, though, they were taken care of by the government. They were employed by kings. They stood in front of the kings of Israel and they prophesied how well they were going to do in battle and how victorious they were going to be. And they dismissed the sins of the people of Israel. And Jesus, with his illustration of the false prophets, is showing us as believers that when, when all people speak well of us, when no one has anything negative to say about us, because of the reality of the world that we live in, a world that is against God, that it is impossible for that to be true and for us to also be in unity with God. It is impossible for a whole world that has set its face against the God of the universe to look at us and our testimony and assess it as positive if we really are aligned with God. The whole world will not like us. Maybe pockets, maybe pockets of the church will be fans of the kinds of things that we have to say, but at large or in the main, the world is going to have lots of negative things to say about believers. And this should not come as a surprise to us. We visited this several times in the text, even the week that we looked at, blessed are you who are persecuted for my name's sake. And remember, Jesus says enmity with the world is being a friend of God. But if you're a friend of the world, if the world loves you, you've set yourself at enmity with God. If you're with the world, you're against God. And if you're with God, you're kind of out of the world. You've been rejected by it. And we know that Jesus was ultimately crucified by a world that hated him and was disgusted with him. And it wasn't just the pagans who hated God that crucified Jesus. It was the Jewish religious leaders who led the charge to crucify Jesus. And so there's a kind of person who's a false prophet who's going to see true prophets and who's going to hate them. And the false prophets can be known by the fact that all people speak well of them. No one has anything bad to say. But this is truly impossible for a Christian. It's impossible for a believer in God to have every single person on earth speaking well of them. And last week, uh, Max talked about the fact that, you know, the woes are addressed to people who are non-believers and the blessings are addressed to believers. And that is true. But I want you to take a look at uh, verse 26 with a keen eye and I want you to see two things. The first is that the woe is addressed to you, of uh, a second person personal pronoun. It says, woe to you. And remember who Jesus is addressing this whole talk to. He's talking to his disciples. So while he might be speaking the woes and the woes apply to non-believers, the woes are spoken in the presence of those who are attesting disciples of Christ. He says, woe to you. 
And then to the 12, he says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Now that second phrase there I want you to look at is the there right before the word fathers. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now that's referring to an outside group who's not the group he's talking to right now. And that helps us to understand in this woe at least, he's specifically looking at the disciples and saying, woe to you when all people speak well of you because their fathers did that to the false prophets. Now, who are the people who persecuted the false prophets? It's the fathers of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish religious leaders. So Jesus is not saying woe to you and talking about the religious leaders. Right now he's saying woe to you in reference to the disciples because he's saying the, the, the fathers of the false teachers, the religious leaders are the ones who, who accepted the false prophets. So woe to you if you end up in a camp where all people speak well of you because that's exactly what has happened in the past. The Jewish religious leaders did that to the people in their day, the prophets in their day. And so this is specifically in line towards the disciples. Now, why might that be the case if the woes only apply to non-believers? If you remember earlier in chapter 6, Jesus picks the 12 disciples. And while he picks many people who we're familiar with, he picks one person who might be coming to your mind right now, even as I'm talking, Judas Iscariot, the man who would betray him. And Judas is with the 12, standing with them, hearing the blessings and the woes. And whether he knows it at that moment or not, this woe certainly does apply to him. Because what he does eventually when he betrays Christ is he goes to these religious leaders and he allows them to speak well about him. He betrays the Christ. He does something that they deem right in their own eyes. And he betrays the Lord. And he is the one who, who leads the, the people to start the persecution of Christ, ultimately leading to his death on the cross. Judas is in that group. And remember, Judas stands as a real historical person in history, but also as a foreshadowing, as a type of all manner of false teaching that will come in the name of Christ in the future. Most of the early epistles are written to combat false teaching. And most of that false teaching is designed not because it hurts people's sensibilities, but because it's perfectly in line with the kinds of things that people want to hear. Paul says to young Timothy, he says, people in the last days are gonna grab for themselves teachers who will scratch their itching ears who will tell them exactly what they want to hear. And that's the reason, Timothy, you need to know your doctrine well and you need to guard your holiness. Is because people, carnal men, are going to come teaching things to other carnal men and the sinners are going to welcome the, the person who's preaching that their sin isn't a sin. That's the mark of a false teacher, someone who's not against Christ, someone who professes Christ and who instead testifies against the truth of Christ. That's the mark of a false prophet. It's not someone who's in Israel who says, I'm an atheist. It's someone who's in Israel who says, I worship Yahweh, but Yahweh's okay with that sin and that sin and that sin. He's totally fine with all of those things. That is the mark of a false prophet. And we can see this clearly illustrated all over scripture, but I just want to turn your eyes to one cross-reference in particular, Jeremiah 23, verse 16. Jeremiah, one of the prophets who speaks about the frustrations and the problems of Israel in his day. And he prophesies uh, particularly about the false prophets in this section, but he has this very tightly knit paragraph that I think is worth addressing. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 16 reads like this. It says, thus says Yahweh of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. 
They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, and what do they say? They say, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows their own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. That is the mark of a false prophet. Jeremiah says a false prophet can be identified by the fact that they don't speak God's words. They look at sin and they say, it'll be well with you. Don't worry about it. And they look at someone who follows their own stubborn heart and they say, there's no disaster to come. In other words, if you were contemporaries of these false prophets, you'd go, man, I really like that guy. I really like the person who's preaching that message because they don't challenge anything within me. The false prophets are looking for what people want to hear and then they say exactly that. That's what a false prophet does. And that leads to all manner of people speaking well about them because they've never said anything offensive a day in their life. They want to appease the ears of an itching generation. It's the mark of a false prophet. It's the thing Paul warns about in 2 Timothy. But this is not a problem for unbelievers. This is a problem that is present within the church. False preachers and false teachers exist all around the church. And the warning about them is to the disciples. It's to other people who are going to follow Christ. And it says that if all people speak well about this person, be wary of their teaching. And if you are that person, be wary because if all people speak well about you, chances are you're not proclaiming the truth. You're not speaking true things about God. And you're not speaking true things about Jesus Christ. Now, there's a, a bunch of texts in the New Testament that you could go to to see this reality painted uh, in very clear brushstrokes. But I would like to turn your attention mainly to 2 Peter and chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 has one of the most lengthy rebukes of false teachers in Scripture. And we're going to read a good chunk of it just because I think it does such a good job of painting this picture of what Jesus is warning against. I'm going to read starting in verse 1 of chapter 2 of 2 Peter. And he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. These false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They will even deny the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Well, the reason he has to warn the church about this, the reason Peter has to write to warn the church, is because it seems to everyone in the church that these false teachers are getting away just fine with all that they're saying. He says they're bringing upon themselves swift destruction, but, and many will follow their sensuality. But notice this, it, the way of truth is what's being blasphemed. The way of God is what's being challenged here. But these false teachers nevertheless profess to be followers of the one true God. And he goes on to warn in verse 4 that God doesn't spare angels and he won't spare these people either. But notice, uh, I think, very clearly what he says uh, in verse, uh, let, me, let me find it here, in verse, uh, verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, 
But these, he's referring to false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters about which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Verse 13, suffering wrong as they wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revile in the daytime. And they are blots and blemishes, reviling in their deceptions. And while they feast with you, verse 14, notice what marks them. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts which are trained on greed. They are accursed. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray and have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who gained from his wrongdoing. But rather, Balaam was rebuked for his own transgression, and he was rendered speechless by a donkey, which spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Balaam went so far astray in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with the story, that his donkey had to turn around and tell him, God does not want you to do that. And if you have to be rebuked by your mule, you know you've probably gone pretty far astray. And Peter uses that as an illustration, although a very humorous one, to point out a very sober reality that these false teachers are marked by the fact that they preach carnality, they preach sensuality, they say adultery and all these sins and greed and lust and all that stuff is just fine. God's totally okay with it. The same thing Jeremiah says, they they say this thing, that's totally fine. God's not mad about that. That's not going to lead to destruction. It's the mark of a false preacher. And people who are sinners will hear a false preacher and they'll speak very good things about them. They'll say, this person is unlike any other Christian I've ever heard talk. They speak about love. They speak about acceptance. And if that's you, you know, when you interact with people in the outside world and they they speak well of you all the time, they have nothing negative to say about you or your opinions. What might be true about you is that you just tell them whatever they want to hear. Now, as I was reflecting on these verses and asking myself the question and, and praying to the Lord and asking what, what is in here for, for our people, for our church? I, I really don't think that this is a problem for us. Now, if you're examining your own heart and you're realizing that might be true about your own life, I'm not saying discount that. But what I'm saying in the main, as I, as I have, have learned you guys and I've, I've seen your struggles and I've seen the sin that you wrestle with, being slave to the itching ears of other people is not really one of the things that you particularly struggle with as a group. This is something I think that is to be highly commended about you guys as a church. You love the Lord, you love his truth, you love his teaching, and you're unashamed and and sometimes even okay with losing relationships and breaking relationships with people who will will cast you aside for the fact that you testify about God and his word. And that is to be highly commended. That's the thing that Christ says to his disciples earlier. He says, blessed are you who are persecuted on account of my name. And I think that, that rightly applies to you guys as a church. But what's also true is that I don't know everyone's heart. And I don't follow you around 24-7, and I don't know what you say to your friends in secret, or what you tell your coworkers, or what you tell other people. And this is possible that this is true about you in some spheres of life. That you are potentially concerned with the opinions of other people, and you desire for them to approve of you, and so you'll say whatever it takes for them to like you. And if they find out you're a Christian, you'll be clear that you're not like those other Christians, but you rather are more understanding and more accepting and more reasonable. And that might be true, but I don't think it is. And if that is true, I pray that the Spirit would would work on your heart and reveal that to you. But what I want to focus on in this verse, verse 26, is let's say all of that is true, and I, I believe that it is because the kingdom is coming. Let's say all of that is true. Why is that good news? Why is it a good thing that not all people are going to speak well about us as Christians? 
I think it's good news primarily because it tells us that we don't have to, we don't have to play to the ears of non-believers. We play to an audience of one. And when we preach and we testify and we proclaim the gospel, it doesn't matter whatever anyone else says about that. It matters what one person says about that, namely Jesus Christ. And if he says, I identify with him, and he remembers you, and he testifies that you are a faithful witness, then it doesn't matter what anyone else has to say about you. And that is really, really, really good news. Because the world's standard of what it requires for you to be accepted by it is always a moving target. It's always shifting. Depending on, uh, in our society, you know this, depending on what group you stand in and what circles you hang out with, it might be a moving target who's going to approve of you and who's not. And if you're always playing to try to get people to approve of you, it is exhausting and paralyzing. And it can cause great anxiousness and it can cause great frustration. And you can be left always wondering, man, I really hope that person thinks well of me. And you, you, can, you can waste your whole life relying on the opinions of others. And so it is really good news that God has freed us from needing, to approve of, needing the approval of other people. And instead he says, you just need one person to approve of you. You need my son to say, that's one of mine. And you need to be a faithful witness to that truth. Now that does not mean that you're justified in having no fellowship with no other people and having no one who agrees with you. Because there is a church in the world who will testify about your truth and say, yeah, that is true. So you, you should find that truth reciprocated by others in the faith. But the point that Jesus is making is that if all people is your target for approval, you're going to be found wanting because that's exactly the tr- game that the false prophets tried to play. And if you read uh, all of the prophets, the true prophets recorded in Scripture, you'll notice how often they are left with rebuking the false prophets. They're left to clean up the mess of the false prophets, and they're left to testify that Israel is led astray because their priests won't preach about sin. And their priests won't tell them they're against God. Whereas a true prophet like Moses comes down, sees Israel in sin, and rebukes them immediately because he loves them. Not because he wants them to approve of him. They hate him as leader, and often they're trying to get rid of him. But Moses doesn't care about what they have to say. He knows what God has told him, and he's going to have to tell the people regardless of whether they like it or not. And that's true of you as well. As you walk with other Christians, sometimes you tell them out of love things that they don't want to hear. And that you know they're going to dislike you for having said. But that doesn't mean that you don't say it. That doesn't mean you say it with with strong rebuke and with no love and no grace. But it shouldn't restrain you from speaking truth depending on what their opinion is going to be of you. Because in that case, you might just care who they are and what they think about you. And you love yourself, not really that person. And So that is something we have to constantly examine in ourselves. But it's good news that Christ frees us from needing the approval of others to be successful. I, uh, I titled uh, this sermon, uh, The Democracy on Judgment Day. That's obviously, I think many of you might have picked that up. It's a sarcastic title. There is no democracy on Judgment Day. When you stand before the throne, Jesus is not going to turn to the Father and say, let's cast a vote and see how many people liked what he had to say in his lifetime. There is one judge on Judgment Day, and his vote is the only one that matters. So if every single person in a wicked generation testifies towards you or against you, it doesn't matter. The vote goes to God. It's the only vote that matters. If all the demons in hell testify against you, if Satan accuses you and testifies against you, if all of the people in your generation testify against you, it doesn't matter. There's only one vote that does. Think about Noah and how many people in his generation would have voted against him. And he's the only one who is approved of. 
Think about Job standing in the company of all his unrighteous friends. And how many of them, if they were given a vote, would have said, you know, I think Job is being sinful right now. And if it was up to a democratic vote, Job would have failed and all of his friends would have succeeded. But we know, because we have the counsel of God interpreting that event for us, that Job is actually in the right and all of his friends have sinned by speaking lies about God. This is true all over scripture. And so if you were to zoom, zoom out, zoom backwards, and ask the question, well, what is the purpose of Jesus telling us the woes? Why does he give us these statements? Why does he give us this kind of insight? The reason is so we can see more clearly what's actually going on in reality. That's the purpose of the woes. It's to help us soberly judge our present circumstance, always in light of future realities. And there's two texts that I think of all the time when I, when I come to this truth, and one of them is in the Old Testament. I love Old Testament references. And if you'll turn with me to one of those, it's 2 Kings chapter 6. Now, you might have to go digging back in your Bible a little bit to find this, but 2 Kings chapter 6 is one of these stories that just paints such a beautiful picture of what Jesus is doing here for us. The section that uh, we're going to be looking at, it starts in verse 8 of chapter 6. But I'm not going to read this whole section. I'm just going to paraphrase some of it. Uh, The situation is as follows. Elisha is the prophet of God in Israel at this time. He's recently come into the anointing of the Spirit. He's recently performed a lot of miracles. And he's doing so so effectively against the enemies of Israel that the king of the Syrians says, who is the traitor? Who is the spy in our midst? Because the Israelites know so well what's going on ahead of time that he thinks one of his own people and his own council has betrayed him. The truth is not that. The truth is Elisha is a prophet of God and he preaches true words towards God. And Elisha can predict accurately what's going to happen in the future. And so the Israelites are actively able to combat the Syrians and able to thwart every single one of their plans. And so the king of Syria says, okay, if that's the case, if that is true, go get Elisha and bring him to me. I don't want him talking to the people of Israel anymore. So a whole army assembles and they come to get Elisha. And Elisha's sleeping, and the next morning he wakes up and his army is there. And I want you to read with me, uh, starting in verse, um, I think it's verse 11. No, 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 it's verse 15, I'm sorry. Verse 15. It says, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out. So this is Elisha's servant. He says, behold, he see, behold an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. So they're totally surrounded. And the servant said, And now he's talking to Elisha. Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha turns to this servant and he says, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And now you've got to wonder, because the whole city is surrounded, what Elisha is talking about. Verse 17, Elisha prays and says to the Lord, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. He's not having a vision. He's not praying for him to have a dream. He's, he wants him to see more clearly what's actually happening out there in the battlefield. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain, which is surrounding even the army that's in front of them, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's the actual picture of what's going on. And if you know what happens in this event, this whole army is struck blind, and Elisha, one man and his servant, leads an entire army into a a losing situation because the enemies of God were outweighed by the forces of God. 
the chariots protected Elisha. And the reason Elisha wasn't scared is because he saw clearly the whole time what was happening in that situation. He wasn't afraid. The servant, however, who couldn't see was, was fearful because he looks at the situation, the circumstance as it is in front of him, and he's worried because it does not look like it's going well right now for Elisha. And what Jesus is doing to his disciples in the New Testament is something very similar. He's saying, if you look just at what's in front of you, you're always going to think you're losing. If you look, church, just at what's going on in your midst, in your moment, at your time in history, you're always going to think it's a losing fight. But, but don't count on what's going on right now. If it's going well for you, be warned, that might not be a good sign. And if it's not going well for you, be encouraged. Because God himself is working in that moment, and if you saw clearly what the kingdom was coming and what it was going to look like, you would be encouraged to stay in the fight, to persevere, to endure, to be strengthened, to not care about what it looks like right now because there's an eternal coming reality that is more real than the actual reality. It paints a better picture of truth. And there is no time in history when this was more true than when Jesus was crucified. When Jesus was crucified, everyone in that moment, everyone in that circumstance, looked at that situation and said, Jesus has lost. His disciples even looked at that situation and said, Christ has lost. He has been completely thwarted. The leaders that he had squared off with his whole life long, his whole ministry, have finally gotten the upper hand. They've gotten the Romans to execute him. Now he's hanging on a cross, completely beaten, stripped, mocked, scorned, beaten. There's no way Jesus is winning. That's what they look at the situation like and they, they see that. There's no way that Jesus is winning. So much so that the, the Pharisees have confidence to come right in front of Jesus, which up until that point in the earthly ministry, they'd stop doing because they kept getting beaten. And they say, if you're really the son of God, come down from that tree. And all of the situation in the visible reality looks lost. But what's actually true is that Jesus was a victor on the cross. He doesn't go to the cross as a victim. He goes as a victor. He even tells his disciples ahead of time, calling a shot, saying, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and I take it back up again. He goes to the cross, a very picture of defeat, and he says, this is the means by which I have victory. And predicting that moment ahead of time, he tells his disciples that if you want to walk in a path that is narrow and leading to eternal life, don't look always at your circumstances and see that as a barometer of success. Instead, look to the eternal coming kingdom reality and use that as your picture of success. If people speak well of you in this lifetime, does not matter. If you are scorned and reviled in this lifetime, does not matter. What matters is the coming kingdom, a real, true, heavenly reality. And to, to close, I think, uh, I, love, I love the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, but there's this one particular scene in The Pilgrim's Progress that I think paints this picture very beautifully. And so I just want to read a portion of that for you um, to, to close. And uh, this scene is uh, it's a scene of persecution. So Christian is with his, his friend, uh, and his friend is being held on trial by a city. It's a wicked city. And the wicked city gets a bunch of witnesses together, and they all testify against Pilgrim's friend. And they, they, uh, they say, you know what? This guy is guilty. He's a Christian. We don't like Christians. So we're going to have a false trial, and we're going to get him indicted, and we're going to get him judged and condemned. And the testimony that they have about Christian's friend uh, goes like this. So the first witness that they call is a man named Mr. Blindman. And Mr. Blindman says, I clearly see that this man is a heretic. That's funny because Mr. Blindman can't see anything. 
Then there's another man who speaks, and he said, this is a man named Mr. Lovelust. And he says, I could never endure this man. Nor I, says Mr. Liveloose, for he would always be condemning my way. Now you hear that, and you hear what Jesus says here. It doesn't matter if people speak well about you. People are actually not going to like what you have to say. Mr. Liveloose says about uh, faithful, he says, for he would always be condemning my way. And no one of any of these witnesses speaks well about faithful. And faithful has not done anything wrong. And what happens, the end result in faithful's life is this. And so they did, and therefore he was presently condemned. And to be had from this place, he was to the place he was going to come. They were to put him to the most cruel death that could be invented. And they bring him out to do to, them, to, to him according to their law. So first they scourge him, and then they beat him, and then they cut his flesh with knives, and after that they stoned him with stones, and then they stabbed him with swords, and last of all, they burned him to ashes at the stake. Now, if you're looking at this picture, and you're Christian, or you're anyone in the surrounding scene, you're looking at this saying, wow, faithful, lost. But now there's an editorial insight that goes into this text, and John Bunyan writes these words. He says, now I saw that there stood behind the multitude, so behind the people who've just killed him, a chariot and a couple of horses waiting for faithful. And he was taken up into it, and straight away he was carried up to the clouds with the sound of a trumpet nearest to the celestial city. And that's what's happening that no one else can see. But this is a real reality of what has happened. And while that is a fictional account of a martyrdom's death, we have a real account that mirrors that in the book of Acts. And all of scripture testifies to this reality, that if Jesus Christ is on your side, if his forces are with you, it does not matter who stands against you. And I think the blessings and the woes illustrate for us the ability to see clearly what's going on. It helps us to look beyond our present circumstances and into the kingdom that is coming and look with sober judgment at reality as it is. And this is something we need to constantly be reminded of because we are constantly wanting approval from the world. So we are constantly wanting to tell people what they want to hear. We are constantly wanting to laugh away serious matters and never deal with them. And so we need to be warned and reminded not to do that, but instead to deal with things and take them to the cross. We are wanting right now in this lifetime to experience satisfaction and fullness and riches and wealth and splendor and comfort. But none of that is promised to us. If we have it, that's fine. But none of that is promised to us. We need to look always at the coming reality that is more real than the one that we're experiencing right now. And how you do there matters way more than how you do here. And so Jesus' words to his disciples encourage them to stay faithful, stay on the narrow path, and to be warned that the path that looks more comfortable and looks safer and looks better is actually way more dangerous. And that's the word for us as well today. Because we live in the same world with the same temptations, and we have the same nature as all of those disciples did. Prone to wander, prone to leave, prone to abandon the truth of God in favor of men's opinions. Prone to walk away from God and love our sin, love our comfort. But instead, Christ Jesus bids us to come, pick up our cross, and follow him. To daily die to ourselves, to constantly be looking towards the cross, not as a picture of death and defeat, but as a picture of victory. That's what all Christians are exhorted to do. Would you pray with me? Father, you are 
Lord over all creation. You are the God who stands and who judges and who guards his people carefully. Lord, we are told several times in Scripture that you, you delicately watch over your people. You are a careful tender to the sheep. You are a shepherd who would lay his life down so that we might be kept safe. And Father, we know that you protect us well. Lord, we know in this moment that you are a good God. And we pray that when we leave this moment, we leave this time, and we go out into our weeks, that that truth would not escape our minds. Lord, would you help us to see clearly always with right vision the circumstances that we face. Lord, help us to get beyond this life and always considering eternal matters to help us to really measure rightly how we're doing. Lord, guard us and keep us from the opinions of people. Keep us fixated, rather, on your word. And by your spirit, Lord, take us home to your heavenly kingdom. Pray in this in all of the precious blood of Jesus Christ's name. Amen.